Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to Arkansas AgCast for June 11th. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. This week, we are joined by Lou Jamison, owner of Jamison Orchard in Nashville, who tells us about her family's peach orchard and how the COVID-19 outbreak has affected their business. We also talk to our own Brandy Carroll to get the facts on the recent Ninth Circuit Court ruling on dicamba, and we chat with Michael Sparks of the new Arkansas chapter of the Farmer Veteran Coalition and Karen Indy of the Northwest Arkansas Food Systems Program. First, Greg Patterson visits Karen Indy, an advisor to the Walton Family Foundation's Northwest Arkansas Food Systems Program. She explains the program's focus on growing food locally for local sale and local consumption. This is Greg Patterson with Arkansas Farm Bureau, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, we're talking with Karen Indy. She's an advisor for the Walton Family Foundation. They have a program called the Northwest Arkansas Food Systems Program. And uh, Karen, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So tell us, what is the Northwest Arkansas Food Systems Program? So the Northwest Arkansas Food Systems Program is an initiative that the Walton Family Foundation started. Um, it's intended to serve as a national model for food grown locally that also supports the local economy and provides healthy access um, sorry, healthy food access for all. Um, the, the work capitalizes on two key areas. The first is supporting small-scale farmers, um, and the second is improving their access to local wholesale fresh produce markets. And, and what are some of the, the strategies um, that are underway? I know this is a relatively new program. Yes, yeah, so this program um, started actually several years ago with a comprehensive research initiative, and out of that, we really wanted to take a look at the whole ecosystem of local food in Northwest Arkansas. So the program really tries to look at how to make the food system function effectively. Some of the things we found in our early research was a loss of acreage and farmland in Northwest Arkansas, which is really concerning because that's been a trend not just you know between the 2012 Ag Census and the 2017 Ag Census, but going back years before. And you'll see if you look at the I-49 corridor, that's where our best farmland is, and there really isn't anything left that hasn't been built on. So really trying to think, first of all, what is area left in Northwest Arkansas that can be farmed? who can be doing the farming, and how do we help those that are already farming make sure that they um, have viable livelihoods. Now, you mentioned uh, a lot of loss of farmland uh, in northwest Arkansas, and, and a lot of our listeners probably already know that's one of the fastest-growing areas, not only in probably the fastest in Arkansas, but one of the fastest in the country. Um, so how how are you, I mean, once those houses are built and those subdivisions are put in, um, you have a patchwork of, of community and leftover ag land. How do you tie that all together to, to create a sustainable local food source? I think we're still really lucky that there are areas, when you think about um, the western part of Benton County and up in Pea Ridge, that still have some really great farmland and haven't been built on. 
Um, same thing down as you get into the southwest part of Washington counties. And then as you go further east into Madison and Carroll counties, there's um, land. Some of it's good for um, growing crops and, and some of it's really good for pasture and cattle. And that's an important part of our food system as well. So how do we preserve that land that's already there? And how do we encourage farmers to new farmers to grow on it and existing farmers to add to their capacity. So we have a grant out to the Northwest Arkansas Land Trust, and they're seeking to directly address those issues. And what are some of the goals the Land Trust has in regards to that? Are they after, do they have acreage goals? Do they have number of farm goals? What are That's a great question. Um, so the initiative itself at the Walton Family Foundation level has a goal of putting in a thousand more acres under cultivation of fruits and vegetables in the next 10 years and also adding 75 new farmers in the next 10 years. So I think it may sound small when you think, you know, about row crop production in the Midwest, but when you think about the number of acres that are currently cultivated here, I think that's a pretty big goal. Um, we currently have, I'm looking at my notes right now, in, um, according to the 2017 Ag Census in Benton and Washington counties, we only have 270 acres in vegetable, potatoes, and melons. Um, and fruits and nuts, it's even smaller. So our acreage right now is really small, and I think 1,000 acres is actually a pretty audacious goal some days of the week. Yeah, it sounds like it is, especially in that area. It has converted so much over the last, uh, you know, 30 years. So you mentioned the uh, land trust, Northwest Arkansas Land Trust. Who are some of the other uh, partners that the Walton Foundation is working with? So we have two other grantees as part of this initiative. The University of Arkansas has a three-part grant, um, and that's really designed to help existing farmers grow and scale and to help develop new farmers. It's um, part of the funding goes to extension in Northwest Arkansas, and that's to provide education to help existing farmers grow and scale. Things like meeting food safety requirements. If we're going to sell into wholesale accounts, farmers need to be GAP certified. Um, things like how do you pack for wholesale, skills that farmers who have only been selling to farmers markets wouldn't have. And the next part of the grant was to develop a farm apprenticeship program. And I'm really excited. The program launched in early 2020, and there are currently six apprentices placed on farms across northwest Arkansas. And that program includes both some classroom work as well as really learning alongside, alongside experienced farmers in the region. And then the third part of the grant um, is set to launch in early 2021, which is a small farm training program, and that will be located um, in Fayetteville, right near the Food Science Building. Some of the acreage that they have back there has been allocated towards that program. So these three um, things you just mentioned with the University of Arkansas, that all falls under their umbrella of, of the Center for Arkansas farms and food, correct? Exactly. They created that umbrella to handle these three programs. And also, I think it folds in some of the other work that they've been doing over the years, um, helping farmers in the region. Tell us if you know any anything um, that's going on with the apprentice program right now, since that's that's already kicked off. 
Well, I have one story, which is I think it's a success. We have a young farmer that was placed at Red Barn, which is really more of an urban farm setting um, downtown Bentonville. And I heard he did such a good job as an apprentice that he's moved into a full-time position. So we didn't even make it a full year, but I think it's a success story because he's now got full-time employment. That's outstanding. That's outstanding. So you you mentioned there's six apprentices presently in the program? Exactly. Well, I guess five. Okay. I guess we lost him. You lost one because <laughs> he was just success. Right. We have to be careful how we measure numbers because I don't want to count them as like a loss from the program when it's really a win when what we're trying to do is help people with gainful employment and help them start their own small farm businesses. Now, you mentioned you mentioned extension, which which has been around for a long time, but you're putting a lot of emphasis on, um, I guess, what you guys call farmer training. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would farmer training entail? What What's the focus? And I'm sure the focus is going to be based on the two years of information that you all gathered to go after certain markets and certain um, uh, parts of the local food economy. Yeah, so one thing we we found out when we did our, our deep dive on what's happening with farms in the region is that our small farms are doing a really good job of directing consumer marketing. You know, we have beautiful farmers markets all across northwest Arkansas, but what the farmers at the markets told us, and we did do a survey, we went around to just about every farm stand at every farmers market in Benton, Washington, Carroll, and Madison counties, is that they're working more markets but not making more money. And that's a problem. I mean, it takes time away from the farm to sit at a market. And um, if you're not selling more produce or your sales are going down at one market so you have to add another, that's not good for business. We also found out that um, a lot of the farmers would be interested in growing for wholesale, but they don't have the time to run around and try to develop accounts on their own, and they also don't have the volume that some kinds of businesses need at wholesale. So, for example, they couldn't sell to a hospital food service. They just don't have enough food. Um, So we thought a lot about how do we help this, right? We know there's a great demand for local food, the number one reason being that local people want to support our local farmers and our local businesses. So we know the demand is there. We're not seeing the demand grow on the the direct-to-consumer side, so what do we do? And our farmers told us that they would be willing to sell to a food hub, um, and they would be willing to expand their production to do so. So we didn't have a food hub. What do we do? And so as part of this initiative, we're looking at the whole ecosystem. So we know we need more food. We know we need access to land. And we know now that we also need – access to markets. And the Food Conservancy, which started as Good Nature Family Foods up in Kansas City, came down to Northwest Arkansas to help us fill that gap. And so they are providing wholesale market access to um, existing farmers in the region and new farmers that are, that are you know, I, I want to say sprouting, but I'm really bad with the farm puns. <laughs> um, what caught my attention when when we started to uh, look at this and discuss this was the fact that it's locally grown food that y'all want to stay in Northwest Arkansas. So it's sold local, it's grown locally, it's sold locally, and consumed locally. 
Are there any other um, kinds of programs like this in the United States? I think there are local food hubs across the United States all operating with slightly different structures and models that are designed to um, support local farmers and to sell the food locally. I think it, one of the things that we were really um, concerned about is making sure that the food stays here. We're trying to serve Northwest Arkansans. And so it doesn't do any good if we're growing food and shipping out of the region when we know that there are people here that want fresh, healthy food. And there are people, quite frankly, that need healthy food in northwest Arkansas, and we need to make sure that we get it to them. I was going to ask you, you make a good point there, uh, people who want it and then people who need it. And that, that goes into, a, I would think, a economic demographics look of, uh, there are people who can afford um, to to buy locally, um, and then there's people who need that food locally who may not be able to afford it. How do you bridge that gap for those folks? That's a great question, and one of the things that often comes up when you talk about local food is, oh, that's lovely, but it's only for the wealthy or the elite who can afford right, it. Right, right. Um, and I think sometimes when you think about farmers' markets that – that can be true, although there's also research showing that it's, when you look item per item, it's not necessarily true. But one of the things that this initiative is trying to do is to access wholesale markets to meet people where they shop. So if, if you're low income and you're a beneficiary of SNAP and you shop at a supermarket that participates in double your dollars, Right now, you can go into the Harp supermarket in Fayetteville, Bentonville, or Huntsville, and you can buy food that was grown locally, that was aggregated and um, distributed at the Food Conservancy's warehouse in Springdale, and buy it using your SNAP and using double your dollars. And so now we're getting food that's at wholesale prices into the hands of people who can benefit the most from it at a price that they can afford. Are you are you targeting for some of those um, areas in Northwest Arkansas these uh, what they call these food desert areas that don't necessarily have access to traditional grocery stores? You mentioned some of the uh, the, the chain grocery stores that are up in that area that will accept um, the SNAP program, um, which is a, a federal program. Um, but are there any any ways that you're able to, uh, you know, get that kind of food into these food desert areas as well? Has that been looked at? So one of the things that we we looked at was where are the highest rates of diet-related illness in um, Benton and Washington counties? Right. And are trying to target our programs there. So really, it it's really sad to say, but our highest rate of diet-related disease corresponds with our highest poverty areas. And so that's um, certain areas in Rogers and in Springdale. And we've been talking with UAMS, who does a lot of work in those areas, about how we can best serve those communities. Um, right now, our retail program, I should say our, the Food Conservancy's retail program started with HARP. And so they're working with HARPS to figure out what are the best stores, where, do HARPs think, where does HARPS think they can sell that food, and um, you know, which stores are ready to accept it. And we hope that that will grow into those particular stores. And we hope that it will grow 
beyond just those retail stores into other places where people get their food, whether they're hospital cafeterias or patient dining or um, institutional food service, corporate food service, places where people eat where we want to see them have more um, fresh produce. How about um, you mentioned earlier um, the idea of existing farmers being able to grow, grow to scale, to be able to scale up and, and produce more um, locally grown food for local consumption. Obviously, the limiting factor there is access to capital. Mm-hmm. So, so how does this program look at providing capital to these farmers? Access to capital is really important. Um, we're fortunate right now that there are some existing programs that farmers can leverage. NRCS will provide funding for hoop houses, which can help with season extension. It's just it's a long lead time. Um, you need to get your application in early for funding deadline. I think it's in February of each year. But that's an existing program. It's a grant program. It's great, and everybody should try to take advantage of it. Um, Forge is a CDFI in the region that started out with a focus on farmers, and now they've expanded to include other entrepreneurs, but they provide um, small loans for farmers. And then for those farmers that are looking to expand and buy land, Farm Credit has a, a loan program that if you've got just a few years of experience, will help you with that. So I think there are some existing programs. We're still looking at where there might be gaps in funding that we can try to address as part of this initiative. How about um, if you look at farmer diversity um, up in northwest Arkansas, um, are you working with um, uh, diverse groups of farmers, uh, different nationalities, uh, those types of things? What have you found in your, your two years leading up in the research? So uh, all of our grantees in this initiative have goals around helping historically disadvantaged groups. And um, we know that the Food Conservancy is already buying from veteran farmers, already buying from Hmong farmers and Hispanic farmers. Um, I I think the Hmong farmers are a really big group that um, does a really good job of farming. We see them at our farmer's market here and are interested in scaling up. There are um, sometimes language barriers working with them, and to help bridge that gap, we had some translation equipment. We did a workshop. This was awesome. We were with the Food Conservancy. They took us up to a group of Mennonite farms in southwest Missouri, and we brought this translation equipment, and some of the Hmong farmers were just wearing headsets, and then we had one woman who was doing live translation, so she had her microphone headset, and we were in a field. And so as uh, Diana Endicott from the Food Conservancy was talking, there was a live translation, and the Hmong farmers who were walking in the fields could have real-time translation of everything that was being said. So when we were talking about how they were doing field packing and the importance of straw on the ground, um, it was really wonderful to see that we were able to use technology to make sure that we had access for those people that needed it. It sounds like a, a, a really exceptional program um, that has been developed up there. What's, what's the timeline that, 
that the Walton Family Foundation is looking at? Does this this program have a a shelf life of of how many years? I hope forever because you know I, I don't think that the challenges we face as um, communities wanting local food are going to go away. I think the role of the land trust in helping connect farmers to land is going to be an ongoing one. I think. Um, Providing education is something that is ongoing. I, I, I don't know. I'm a true believer in, in education in every aspect, so um, I don't think that's going to go away. And I think the role of the Food Conservancy as a food hub can just continue to grow as we see more food coming out of the ground. But to be more direct in answering your question, we developed our big goals around acreage and number of farmers. Um, we set those goals in 2018, and those are 10-year goals. And so we hope that we'll see a sea change by um, 2028. Speaking about sea change, um, with the COVID-19 pandemic and the way people purchase food, um, what are you guys learning on the fly there? Uh, we're learning that everything is changing every day, I think. Um, there are farmers that we thought were going to be selling to the Food Conservancy, and they found that they had more direct-to-consumer markets right away as, as people were really um, wanting more local and have set up their own direct-to-consumer websites. Um, we do have concerns that, based on some studies that Stone Barn Center in upstate New York did, that farmers might be doing well now, small farmers, but they might take a hit later. And so we're really trying to be flexible with the, our grantees on this program and help them respond as things change and will continue to change. How about you mentioned vegetables and, and fruit um, as a target for some of these small farms, um, and, and they do very well with that with high channel. Sorry, you cut out a little bit there. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I was saying uh, you mentioned uh, earlier a concentration on uh, fruit and vegetables with uh, the small farmers, and, and that works well on small acreage with high tunnels and things like that. What about livestock production? Is there any uh, – are you all looking at livestock production as well? So the, the Food System Initiative doesn't have any current goals around livestock, but you've touched on a topic that's near and dear to my heart, and um, Northwest Arkansas has lots of cattle. Um, so with COVID, we're seeing lots of changes. We know that our local meat processors are booked out until the spring or perhaps later. So it's something that I think is really important um, and can help move our local system, something I think a lot about, but we don't have any specific goals around that right now. Anything else that you would like to add um, that I haven't touched on yet? It sounds like a pretty expansive uh, project. Well, I would like to just circle back and talk a little bit more about the Land Trust program because it, in my passion for this project, I think I said 20,000 things in one sentence and didn't really share <laughs> some of the key things that the land trust is doing. Um, but they have a, a new program called FarmLink, and that's designed to help um, people that want farmland access farmland. And it could be in the form of a lease or it could be in the form of a purchase. 
So they're trying to really bridge connections between land seekers and landowners in whatever form that might take. And it's not just a website. They spend a lot of time bridging connections and um, trying to find good matches. So that's the, it's NWA Farmlink. And um, I think they're, they've already started to make matches. They're trying to leverage the um, USDA Agricultural Land Easement Program, which can help uh, provide some federal funding to people that put land and conservation specifically for agricultural purposes. So they're really taking an interesting and thoughtful perspective on how to provide that land access in the region. You know, they have uh, the challenge is, of course, that you have this incredible patchwork quilt up there now of, of uh, communities, suburbia, um, old farmland that's either in use or was in use. How do you bridge the gaps uh, when you have, have you know, uh, it's surrounded on two sides, let's say with a dairy farm and another, you know, some other sort of farming. Do you run into issues there? So you cut out for part of that. I think you're asking how do we deal with this patchwork where you might have, you know, someone with cattle next to a subdivision next to a dairy farm or, or a chicken house. And um, we do have quite a, a quilt in northwest Arkansas. Right, right. I don't really know the answer to that question. I think that there's a real desire to preserve some of the agricultural and rural nature of northwest Arkansas and thinking through with the land trust, you know, if we have a goal of a thousand acres, where do we do that? How do we do that? How are they making connections with existing farmers and, and what can that look like? Um, but I don't really have an answer to, to how we uh, plan for better development. Uh, final question for you. When, when the uh, uh, studying was going on in the two years leading into this, were there any historical crops, fruit, uh, Northwest Arkansas at one time was the apple capital of the United States. So the, are there any attempts to resurrect those types of things? Or what were some of the target crops maybe that um, the program's going after to produce locally? So I actually did a lot of research about that. I spent a couple afternoons in the Shiloh Museum reading old newspaper articles. I can really geek out on it and, and really love learning about the history of, of production in the region. Um, my favorite was a, a billboard that was for Springdale, and it was called the Market Center of the Ozarks, and I just love that. Someday I'm going to get a reproduction and have it framed in my office. But, you know, we don't have any specific crop goals. Um, I think the market is going to tell us what those crops are going to be, and I think the Food Conservancy will be working closely with farmers as they're planning what crops to plant by saying, this is what is a high dollar value and this is what we think we can sell, and trying to help meet the consumer demand in that way. Um, you know, the thought of revitalizing apple production here is is really beautiful, but I also think that that takes a long time to get established, and um, we'll have to see what happens. Well, I'm Greg Patterson with Arkansas. I'm Karen Indy, an advisor for the Walton Family Foundation. 
and she's been working on a great new program that they've got going, the Northwest Arkansas Food Systems Program. And, Karen, thank you so much for spending time with Arkansas AgCast, bringing us up to speed on what's going on up there on local food production for Northwest Arkansas. Thanks so much for having me, Greg. Next, Ken Moore talks to Brandy Carroll, Director of Commodity Activities and Market Information at Arkansas Farm Bureau, about the recent U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decision to vacate the registrations of three dicamba herbicides, halting the sale of the technology used by soybean and cotton farmers for pigweed. Carroll explains the ruling and what it means for Arkansas farmers. On this edition of AgCast, I'm speaking with Brandy Carroll. Uh, Brandy is Director of Commodity Activities and market information for Arkansas Farm Bureau. And we're going to be discussing a ruling that came down uh, last week uh, by the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which halted the sale of three in-crop dicamba formulations. Uh, Brandy, uh, if you will, uh, dicamba, we haven't talked about it much lately, but we're pretty much through the planting season now here in Arkansas. But uh, it was these formulations have been uh, uh, for cotton and soybean farmers in particular, and maybe a few others, but particularly for cotton and soybeans, uh, an important uh, uh, tool for them to use in the fight against Palmer amaranth, or more commonly known as pigweed, which is a major problem for cotton and bean farmers. Talk about what this ruling means. Okay, well, um, this ruling, um, as you said, was handed down by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, and it immediately halted the use of uh, Bayer's Extendamax, BASS Ingenia, and Corteva's Sexapan um, dicamba herbicides, which are formulated for over-the-top use on Bayer's um, Extend technology, that which is... Um, those are soybeans and cotton that are um, uh, genetically modified to be tolerant to dicamba because those crops are historically not. So um, this is a very specific production system created by Monsanto that was then bought by Bayer. Um, and so uh, it, this ruling put an immediate halt to the use of the herbicide that is meant to protect those crops. Now, um, across the United States, uh, farmers intended to plant uh, 84 million acres of soybeans and uh, nearly 14 million acres of cotton. Um, you know, those numbers uh, vary a little bit based upon actual production decisions. But uh, as of the last production report, which was for Crop Progress Report, as of May 31st, 75% uh, of soybean acres and 66% of cotton acres have been planted across the country. So that means that farmers uh, are very close to uh, having all of their uh, crops in the field and have already made those decisions. And so farmers may have made an investment in a herbicide-resistant uh, crop that they can no longer protect from, from weeds like, um, like you mentioned, uh, Palmer amaranth, uh, commonly known as pigweed, uh, which is a huge threat, uh, you know, to your crop. Yeah. Uh and so, you know, it's it's taken a while, or it took a while, I should say, up until the, uh, recent years to come up with these uh, technologies uh, that have now been on the market that were approved by EPA uh, because pigweed, just if, 
for those listening to our conversation that may not be aware at this point, it's pigweed's been around for a long time now, and it's become uh, Roundup resistant, and, and the farmers need some tool to uh, try to deal with it. So uh, it's been used effectively, hasn't it, or not? Doc Hamba, um, yes, it is effective on pigweed. Um, it has been uh, not without controversy. Um, its use uh, and over-the-top spraying, uh, it does um, tend to move off target. These new formulations are formulated to be much safer and drift less, but um, particularly in Arkansas, there's been a lot of uh, controversy surrounding the use of dicamba, and the Arkansas State Plant Board, um, so under um, the FIFRA, uh, the EPA designates the um, ability, the authority to regulate pesticides to the states. And so in Arkansas, that's the Arkansas State Plant Board. And while they cannot take anything away from the federal label that EPA granted the pesticides, the, they can add additional regulations. And that's what the Arkansas State Plant Board has chosen to do uh, for the past several years. And so in Arkansas, the cutoff for over-the-top spraying of dicamba was May 26. So um, other than a very small number of farmers that are east of the Mississippi River levee but still in the state of Arkansas, um, they can apply for a special permit from the plant board. Um, but, but most growers in Arkansas, the cutoff date was May 26. And so uh, in Arkansas, if you didn't have your application made by that time, then uh, you couldn't make it anyway. So I guess the impact in Arkansas may be felt a little bit less than um, in many other states across the country. Um, but, you know, right now there's still just a whole lot of questions. Uh, the ruling came down last Wednesday. Um, it's unclear right now how EPA will respond. Um, we expect that they might be looking at seeking a stay of the current decision or limiting the court's decision to only apply to the states in the Ninth Circuit and not make that a nationwide um, a nationwide halt on the use of the chemical. Um, ASBF and other organizations, uh, American Farm Bureau Federation and other ag organizations are requesting that EPA issue uh, something called an existing stocks order, and that would allow farmers to have access to the dicamba that's already in the pipeline that they that they've already purchased, whether it's in their possession or they've you know reserved it and you know with their um, with their pesticide dealer. So uh, I think there's a whole lot more to this story to come, uh, but it 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 certainly is big news for now uh, for the farmers who have made a very significant investment uh, in seed that they may not be able to protect at this point. Well, I appreciate you explaining that. Uh, and, again, uh, without these technologies, and, and I guess just to the degree you can, uh, pigweed has become enemy number one, I guess, as far as uh, uh, for cotton and bean farmers. Uh, without something like this, what is, how does that affect uh, potential yields for soybeans or cotton if they don't have some sort of way of dealing with this uh, pigweed. Right. Um, you know, um, the, the production system is also uh, tolerant to uh, Roundup. This is a stacked trait. Um, they added the dicamba tolerance to the Roundup-ready production system. So 
you know, there may be some other options, uh, but, you know, to those, for the pigweed that has developed resistance, um, it may be tough to control, and you may see people having to hire crews of, uh, of you know, of ag labor to pull those pigweeds or chop them with hose. Um, those are the sorts of things. Um, you can also, you know, maybe pull a seal cultivator through your beans, but, you know, more of a manual type approach, which is much more expensive and time-consuming, obviously, and not as effective. Um, you know, so, I mean, they're all, they're all probably harder, so. Yeah, well, it uh, it may very well, uh, you know, when we get to harvest time, and if, thankfully, for for our farmers here in Arkansas, uh, they were able to utilize these technologies prior to May 26th, as you said. So that window has passed, and hopefully uh, it'll prove effective and not impact their yields as we get into harvest later in the year. But uh, like you said, we'll just wait and see what happens with uh, this ruling and see if it is indeed appealed uh, so that our growers next year will know if they have it available to use or not, right? Well, sure. Yeah, that that would be um, important to know. Um, this growing season is just getting started. Um, it is an un unfortunate timing. Um, you know, the EPA did ask the court to um, delay any decisions until after the growing season to protect farmers who already had uh, their um, their crops planted, and the the court declined to do so. Um, so, you know, a lot of people are putting their heads together and trying to find the best uh, the best approach, you know, to solve this issue the best that we can. All right. Brandy, thank you very much for kind of explaining this for us. And I uh, uh, just hope that we have a, a good growing season. It's been, as you know, and as we've already reported, uh, soybean and cotton farmers, all of our crop farmers really had a, extended growing season, or I should say planting season, again, because yes. of the very wet spring that we had. But uh, we've had some uh, dry weather up until today. We're getting the remnants of a uh, tropical system to come in from the Gulf that's, uh, I think, uh, bringing a lot of rainfall to uh, the Delta and our crop farms. But uh, the rest of the week looks good, and hopefully this summer we'll have a good growing season. Uh, we that's right. Um, we we hope that it does get a little more favorable. Things got off to a slow start, but um, Arkansas producers have uh, most of what they intended to plant in the ground already. The next crop progress report comes out in uh, less than an hour from when you and I are recording this. So um, okay. we'll see how much progress they made last week. Um, but uh, um, but now you know. For people who had their rice in the ground, this rain is probably pretty welcome as long as we don't get wind with it. So, um, you know, depending upon your stage, this this uh, rain might have been just what you needed today. So. Well, hope so. I heard from one of our growers down in the Shea County last week that it actually gotten too dry, which I thought yeah. was a little interesting. So it doesn't take long mm -hmm. if we get it four doesn't. or five days of hot, dry weather for the soil to dry out for them, for our growers. So maybe this is very timely. Uh, thanks That's for your right. time, Brandy. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Been talking to Brandy Carroll, Director of Commodity Activities and Market Information for Arkansas Farm Bureau on this edition of AgCast.
The Farmer Veteran Coalition recently added three new state chapters, including one here in the natural state. Michael Sparks, president of the newly formed Arkansas Group, talked to Keith Sutton about the nonprofit organization and how it assists veterans of the armed forces embarking on careers in agriculture. Welcome to AgCast. I'm Keith Sutton with Arkansas Farm Bureau. And today it is my great pleasure to visit with Michael Sparks of Searcy, the owner of Honeycomb Ridge Farm, a longtime member of Homegrown by Heroes, and also uh, the new president of the Arkansas chapter of the Farmer Veteran Coalition. Michael, welcome to AgCast. Thank you, Mr. Sutton. Good to be here. We uh, want to share with folks uh, some some good news that came out recently that Arkansas now has its own chapter of Farmer Veteran Coalition. But a lot of the folks out there listening may not know what FVC is, really. So maybe we could start there and let you tell us a little bit about the Farmer Veteran Coalition. No, great. Uh, Farmer Veteran Coalition started uh, with a gentleman out in California, uh, Michael Gorman. It was a national effort to bring veterans together and maybe uh, help them in areas that uh, met their needs, whatever their skill level was. Some veterans have found that farming is that place that helps them uh, recover from years of uh, service, whatever they may encounter uh, during that time of service, and it just it's a nice pace and it fits their schedule. And we have found some farmers, some veterans have never even considered farming uh, because you see their idea of farming may be uh, big, huge row crops from the Midwest that they've seen on TV or in movies, and that's not necessarily a true picture of what farming and agriculture really is in America. Why don't you uh, tell folks uh, to get this kicked off? You're a farmer yourself. Uh, you own Honeycomb Ridge Farm. Tell us a little bit about your operation. Okay. Well, my current operation is uh, mainly uh, beekeeping. I have 28 acres. My, me and my family live on 28 acres in central White County. Uh, we have roughly 35 uh, colonies uh, that goes anywhere. It kind of fluctuates. I'm in the middle of growing that uh, because, as usual, I mean, I have another job at the same time. So I, it it takes it's a lot like cattle. Uh, in fact, USDA considers them livestock. But yeah, and the only thing is, I don't have to fix fences. Uh, <laughs> uh, what I started kind of. Where I started out is I grew up on a row crop farm in East Arkansas. We grew rice and uh, soybeans, wheat, milo, uh, you know, what that normal uh, idea of that is. I spent, I was there until uh, 2001, uh, and that kind of guided me away from that farm in uh, Lee, nor, northwestern Lee County. And uh, so I've been away from the farm, but it never really did leave me. And uh, nearing, I've got roughly almost 20 years in the Arkansas Army National Guard and uh, started uh, looking into bees and apiculture as 
something that really interested me. I found out some part in my family, in my history, there's been different uncles and uh, family members that have kept bees, and I, I thought it was extremely intriguing at what they bring to the table, uh, no pun intended. <laughs> it's also uh, It also speaks to what you said a minute ago. It's a type of farming maybe that doesn't come to mind when you say the word farming, but it's a big part of agriculture in this state. It really is. Uh, it's somewhat like buying a new vehicle. Uh, you never know how many of the same color and type is out there until you are driving one. Well, uh, you never know how many beekeepers really are out there that <laughs> until you get into that community and you're like, wow, I never realized that there was that many uh, people that like to go work in the heat and get stung. <laughs> well, bees are important, though. They're important to agriculture. And, uh, gosh, who doesn't like honey? Who doesn't like honey? Uh, <laughs> one of the neatest things that I've really realized is whenever you start talking to someone um, and you mention that you uh, work with bees and you're a beekeeper, and you start talking about honey, a smile comes on their face every time. Absolutely, yes. We uh, we have visited with a lot of folks who are uh, working with bees uh, over the years here, and there's a lot of them in Arkansas. And we always enjoy getting to visit with those folks because bees are just so interesting. And also, let's talk more, let's take it back to uh, the Farmer Veteran Coalition. So how did you become involved with this organization, and how did it uh, happen to come here to Arkansas? So roughly three years ago, um, when I really started looking into uh, beekeeping and transitioning out of the military, I mean, you have to look out a few years in advance. I, of course, like everyone else, I said, you know, I'd like to do it, but I don't necessarily – know how much it'll cost, how how these things are going to uh, grow. So I, I started on the Internet like everyone else and just typed in uh, veteran farmer uh, advice, and it kind of led me to their national website. Well, that national website had a lot of information on it, but I wanted to talk to someone. Uh and really, I had questions and didn't really want to go back and forth on email. Uh, so I started trying to reach out to them. And they have a very small staff that I learned later, but really could not get in contact with anyone. And there was even even less information about Arkansas and what Arkansas had to offer veterans uh, at whatever skill level they were. So I dug into that, and then I started, I learned about Homegrown by Heroes, which is the Department of Arkansas Department of Ag's uh, effort to uh, highlight veteran farmer products. Well, through that, um, I was invited to come and be a part, come be a part of a luncheon last year, and where we had a national rep from Farmer Veteran Coalition present, uh, and we started talking about why Arkansas didn't have its own chapter or what that process really looked like. Um, so once we had that conversation, um, he went back and they decided that that was a, a, a 
something that was missing as far as a bridge between the state of Arkansas's farmer veterans and the national organization, which is a huge advocate for farmer veteran coalition. And anytime you can have a connection to a nationwide network, that's going to add to what we could bring to the Arkansas member. Um, we then had a, a meeting last fall in September uh, with uh, a fellow veteran, uh, Damon Helton, at one of his uh, his restaurant down around Perrin, and where they brought in uh, some partners, uh, Farm Bureau being one of those, Farm Credit was another. Uh, we also had a representative from uh, NCAT up in Fayetteville, uh, just some interested partners to see if this would be what the interest was, number one, and if the interest was great enough, what steps we needed to take. And from that, um, we found ourselves uh, after going through the process of, uh, with some help from the national organization, uh, we were recognized a few weeks ago as uh, an official chapter, the Arkansas chapter of Farmer Veteran Coalition. And this is a, a really uh, growing organization. I know right now it's already the nation's largest nonprofit organization for assisting veterans of the armed forces who embark on agricultural careers. And, and there are thousands of members, and it's growing, growing, growing. And uh, having an Arkansas chapter maybe will help grow it even more. Uh, what are some of your goals? Uh, here in Arkansas, what would you like to see happen? Well, we really have basically three goals that we would like to uh, fulfill. Is number one a starting point for an Arkansas veteran, whether still serving or uh, have exited uh, their service, and uh, we want to be a starting point to give them the option to introduce agriculture as a, a viable option. And it doesn't matter if you want to uh, pursue row crop or something as uh, alternative as beekeeping or there's so many different ways that you can be a part of agriculture. We want right. to be that starting point. Number two is we want to build uh, a network for that starting farmer, no matter what their skill level is and place them in a position to where they can have direct contact with uh, a diversified uh, squad, so to speak, of farmers that are more skilled in whatever um, operation that they're running in order to expose them, number one, so they can choose what fits them best, and number two, to give them a source of uh, exposure and so they can ask questions and they can be connected with their operations so they can be successful. Um, and num number three is to be to place, to build some partnerships to where they can uh, finance, equip, uh, gain technical training, as well as uh, become a mentor themselves. So this is, uh, wow, I mean, when I hear all of that, that's lofty goals. But the organization has already been doing this in some of the other states. Is that correct? 
That is correct. Uh, we were one of three that just uh, became recognized. Uh, other states uh, like Washington State, Michigan, uh, Virginia, um, uh, Oregon, those have all been working on some of these uh, programs and some of these uh, efforts. So they've kind of started this thing off. We're just going to put the Arkansas flavor to that. And that's good because agriculture is such an important part of what we do in Arkansas. So it's very important that we do be a part of this, I would think. Absolutely. I mean, we are uh, an agricultural state. We have a lot of different things to offer, but we are an agriculture state, and there's no reason why we shouldn't be a leader in this community also. And we should tell folks, you don't have to be a veteran to become a member of the organization. Even non-veterans can become members and uh, provide assistance in different ways. Could you speak to that, please? That is absolutely uh, correct. Uh, we are not necessarily, we are here to help the veteran, but we are here to give them as many uh, different perspectives and a lot of that comes from the experts that have never served in the military but they are the experts in their field such as um, orchard production uh, there are some really smart people that know how to make some of the best plums and peaches in Arkansas well those are who we want to be able to offer that that knowledge base to that veteran to give them the confidence um, so that it is, it's an inclusive uh, chapter as far as if you want to be a part of reaching out and and helping these veterans, then absolutely you're more than welcomed. So you've really got uh, two sides of this: the veteran side and those who come in as non-veterans to help. How do I? Let's say I've been listening to this and. This strikes a chord with me. I thought maybe I might want to uh, grow a truck patch and sell produce at our local farmer's market. Or maybe I've decided once I get out of the service, I'd like to raise cattle uh, or whatever it might be. If that's the case, uh, where do I go, Michael, to find more information and, and get started? That's a great question, and I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because we right now we have a couple of different avenues uh, that you can reach out to us. Number one is our Facebook page, Farmer Veteran Coalition Arkansas. Uh, you can request membership to that. We have a lot of contact information. And also on the web, you can go to Farmer Veteran Coalition Arkansas, and it will guide you to the national website, which will direct you to the Arkansas chapter. And you can request membership on either one of those. Uh, you can also reach out to um, uh, my number. I mean, I'll take phone calls anytime to talk about Farmer Veteran Coalition and the partnerships that we're uh, looking to be a part of. And we should tell folks there's no cost to be a member, right? Absolutely not. There's no cost. And, and there's a lot of other uh, advantages, too. I know 
Uh, y'all are working to uh, partner with a lot of different farm equipment suppliers and ag service providers to provide discounts uh, that might help folks as they do get started. We are working on that. The COVID-19 situation has slowed our progress towards reaching out to those different partners. Um, that is going to be part of our uh, fourth quarter campaign is to reach out to some of those individuals and uh, build those type of partnerships. Very good. Well, we appreciate you taking time today uh, to visit with us so we can share information about Farmer Veteran Coalition with our listeners. Uh, I was just looking at the website, uh, the national website, farmvetco.org farmvetco.org. That's where folks could go to get started, correct? Yes, sir. And if you'll scroll all the way down, it'll give you the option to select state chapters, and Arkansas is listed right there uh, down towards on the bottom of that uh, splash page. We wish you all good luck in uh, building your membership. We hope a lot of folks who are listening will take advantage of this opportunity to become involved with y'all. Finally, Ken is joined by Lou Jamison, who discusses her family's multi-generation peach operation, Jamison Orchard, which was established almost 100 years ago. With the help of her extended family, she is keeping the business going following the death of her husband, Joey, last year and facing down challenges like the COVID-19 pandemic. On this edition of AgCast, I'm speaking with Mrs. Lou Jamison. Uh, Lou and her family own Jameson Orchard down in Nashville, Arkansas. And, uh, Lou, you have quite a family history of uh, growing peaches uh, there in southwest Arkansas in and around Nashville. If you will, for the benefit of our listeners on this edition of AgCast, if you will, just kind of give us a brief family history. I know from what I understand, uh, the family peach orchard dates back all the way into the 1930s. Well, yes, sir. My husband was third generation. Our children will be fourth generation to grow peaches. Um, my father-in-law served in World War II under General Patton, and he sent his GI wages home to his dad, and his dad bought the land that we currently grow peaches on. So that, to me, is the epitome of family history. Um, we're looking at over 30 varieties of peaches. My husband was a genius. He decided that we didn't need to just try to grow peaches that all ripen in two weeks and to spread it out all summer long. He began experimenting with the different varieties. And uh, so that's kind of where we are now. And uh, back in the day, uh, a number of years ago, a number of decades ago, uh, peaches were a big, big deal down in southwest Arkansas, weren't they? Now you're one of the few remaining viable orchards in the state, but uh, more than 50 years ago, I mean, there were rail cars loaded with peaches that would come out uh, this time of year. Uh, yes, sir. It, it was big business back then. A lot, of, a lot of farms were peaches, and that kind of gradually went over to chickens and cattle and um, so there's not many of us crazy people left <laughs> to grow pieces. 
Well, we appreciate the fact that you are because our Kansans love fresh peaches this time of the year. Uh, and so anyway, and uh, so you mentioned you have more than 30 varieties, but understand now because of the kind of the weather we're having, you've just now started to see some ripen and you're just starting to pick and sell a few. Talk about that. Um, we have some early clean varieties that we just kind of had a few trees of to kind of kick off our season. And we normally started around the 10th of June with uh, a peach called Ruby Prince and one called Eight Ball. And uh, so I had about two and a half bushel that I took to market this morning. There's, there's just a little smattering of them. The early peaches didn't didn't fare well. Um the later varieties we'll get into are all freestone peaches, except for the late Indian red. It's a clean, it's an old-timey pickling peach. But most of our varieties are well-known. Some of them he chose because they were uh, developed by the University of, of Carolina, and he he likes the idea of uh, the Prince peaches. He he really likes the July Prince, so we have a lot of those. A lot of our varieties didn't make it this year because something uh, weird happened. This seems to be the year for weird, but uh, we had a failure to pollinate due to excessive rainfall in March, and so we only have a few varieties that have a good crop. Of them just have a little smattering here and there, so it's going to be a weird year. Um, we're going to sell all our peaches at the farmers market, and it's just another example of having to deal with what's on your plate and make the best of it. Well, I was going to ask you because uh, for any fruit grower, peach grower, uh, tree fruit grower, if you will, you always kind of worry about that uh, late spring freeze, uh, and, uh, and and you had to deal with that in the past, and now, so you didn't have a worries, worries too much about uh, late season cold weather, but, you know, the excessive rainfall caused your trees not to pollinate right. Is that correct? That's correct. That's, that's our best theory. I mean, uh, I had a good crop, and then the peaches mysteriously just started falling off the trees in April, and we got to cutting them up, and examining them and talking to our neighbor that's crazy like us and grows peaches. And we determined that there was just a failure to pollinate. When when the seed doesn't develop in the fruit, the tree figures out real quick that it hasn't reproduced, so it throws the fruit. Um, the best we can figure is the trees, the varieties that had a small blossom uh, made it, and the ones that had a big showy blossom didn't make it. For for some reason, they held on to the rainwater more or something. Uh, pollination in peach trees is they're self-fertile. They don't have to have bees or pollinators. They just poof that pollen out there and pollinate themselves. Well, there wasn't any pooping with all the rainfall this year. See, that's something that the public doesn't really realize. We've reported on and talked about a lot about how the excessive rainfall affects 
row crop production, getting crops in the ground, and delays planting this time of year. But they don't really understand that that can also affect tree fruit production as well. And I appreciate uh-huh. you explaining that. Well, and it causes disease too, in in the form of root rot and and bacteria. And there's a lot of things you have to fight with excessive water in the orchard. Um, it's too much of a good thing. I mean, rainfall is normally a good thing. Yes, ma'am. Well, talk also a little bit about the fact that you're continuing the family business. You're continuing uh, the orchard uh, on your own with the help of your children. I know uh, I've spoken frequently and uh, with your daughter Carly and son-in-law Derek Helms uh, and your other children. You're continuing on because uh, a beloved man passed away last year, your husband, Joey. Uh, I really, really enjoyed coming down to the orchard in the summer and and visiting with Joey, and and he taught me a lot about what you're doing down there, and he was a genius, as you just said a moment ago. Uh, But you want to continue that on, don't you? He wouldn't want you to shut the orchard down in his absence. I, I maintained from the moment of his death that he would want us to march on. Um, we're made of strong stuff, and um, it was his passion. And while it may not be the rest of our passion, we might want to do something else, this is what we want to do to honor him at this time. I think eventually in the future that my children will want to grow peaches. I, I pray this is so. But for me, it's like he's still with me, and I can just go on and do the best I can and and um, and try to find joy in the situation. Yes, ma'am. I appreciate that and respect that very much. Well, how has the pandemic affected the operation and the ability to reach your customers? You have many people in and around Howard County to look forward to this time of year, and you mentioned that you've already been – connected with some this morning at the farmer's market, but uh, you in the past you've allowed them to come out and kind of pick their own. You have a little bit of a U-pick operation. Will that continue this summer? Um, no, sir. I, I need to sell all my fruit at farmer's markets because I can get a retail price. It's a matter of survival at this point. Um, normally we let people come to the shed and buy fruit at wholesale price. By the box, you know, in in volume. Uh, it's going to be an unusual year. We're going to do the best we can to do our part and wear our masks and behave ourselves. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> well, we're all um, having to adjust, aren't we, to that? Uh, we're to... having to adjust. I can see some wonderful things coming from this. I think people are cleaner. I think people are planning ahead better. And uh, there's, when we look back, I think we're going to see a lot of good things have happened to our society because of this pandemic. Has it uh, affected your ability to have uh, a good labor force? I know you have, uh, in years past, before this pandemic, a reliable, uh, you kind of have a family, fruit operations, horticultural operations like yours. You look forward to having your uh, farm workers there year after year. Has it affected their ability to be back with you this summer? I haven't had any labor problems, but I haven't needed a lot of labor because of the shortage of of fruit. Um, 
uh, we're a resilient society, and I think we'll figure out a way. <laughs> um, and I'm a capitalist at heart. I believe in competition, and I believe in uh, the American way. Uh, I'd like to say that when I need people, they'll be available, and I'll hire them. Sure, sure. I know uh, because in, in some parts of Arkansas, depending on uh, what it is you're growing, <clears throat> they're reaching out to more local labor if they can't get, uh, you know, migrant labor to come in like they right. have in the past. And so, you know, uh, hopefully you, you will never lack for some people to help you pick and, and process your peaches down there and, and your products. So hopefully that won't be a problem for you. But uh so tell us, uh, for those who aren't familiar again, uh, when you really get up and, and, you know, the harvest really begins in earnest here in a few weeks, where all will people be able to find Jameson peaches? I know you're down in Nashville, but where else do you sell them? I sell at Nashville Market on Friday mornings. It's on Washington Street. And I sell at Gateway Farmers Market at Texarkana. It's a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday market. And then I'm at Arkadelphia at the Clark County Market on Wednesday morning. And uh, Saturdays, Carly's going to start going to the Hot Springs Market this year. So I'm I'm pretty central and southwest oriented, and um, I'm close to a lot of the big places. Like when I'm at, at Clark County, I'm just an hour from Little Rock, so... It's not that big a deal to drive an hour anymore. That's true. That's very true. And for people who love fresh Arkansas-grown peaches, they will drive to find you. They, they, we all look forward to this time of year, as I've said before. So, well, Miss uh, Jameson, thank you for visiting with us a little bit this morning. It's exciting to know that this time of year is upon us now. And I'm sorry the weather has kind of diminished the uh, volume and quality of your crop a little bit this summer, but we know you're still going to have hopefully a, a decent harvest and uh, look forward to connecting with you here at one of the farmer's markets here this summer. I can't wait to get some of your peaches myself. All right. Thank you, Ken. Thank you for all you do. been speaking with Lou Jameson of Jameson Peach Orchard down in Nashville, Arkansas, on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. That's a wrap for another Arkansas AgCast. We'll be back next Thursday with the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture.